This episode of Pod Cemetery is brought to you by TTR Protection, who would like to share a security tip with you. Remember, an alarm code is useless if you write it down for the babysitter and she leaves it right next to the keypad. Hello, my name is Chris. My name is Kelsey. And this is Pod Cemetery, where we dissect horror movies like the rotting corpses that they are. It's a double feature week on Pod Cemetery with 1979 and 2006's When a Stranger Calls. The late night double feature show. This is also a recommendation week, isn't it, Kelsey? Yes. Who recommended these movies? Alex. Alex, thank you very much. Like we said last week, I had never seen these movies. Kelsey, you had? I had seen both of them. Yeah. Okay. I think you accurately predicted, for the most part, my response to these movies. (laughs) Uh, But before we get into them, Kelsey, how do we start the show? Trivial Pursuit Horror Edition. Give me what you got. Protagonist Graham Hess in 2002's Signs. Mm Mm-hmm. Is a former what? He's a former priest or pastor or whatever he is. Oh, Graham? It's a different character. God damn it. He's a baseball player. Fucking. (laughs) It actually gives you options. Does it really? Doctor, lawyer, priest, or baseball player. Oh, that's a tricky question because you got to know that they're not talking about the main character of the movie. That's tricky. Oh. It is priest. Oh, I was right. You bitch. <laughs> That's so funny. I didn't I read right. the question all the way through. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Graham Hess was formerly a priest. Yes. <laughs> but it is a trick question. That's right where my mind went. It's just you saw baseball player there and you just like that that's the answer and you didn't even read the next option. <laughs> Yep. Yeah, tell, uh, what's his name? Mel Gibson? No. Joaquin Phoenix? What is Joaquin Phoenix's name? Tell what's-his-face to swing away. What's his name? I it was Graham. No, Graham is obviously Mel Gibson's character. He has, like, Meryl. Meryl. <laughs> tell Meryl to swing away. Yes, okay, I was right. You were right. Or at least it was my instincts. It wasn't like a logical decision, like I knew his name was Graham or something. All right, Kelsey. What David Lynch film was originally filmed as a television pilot? We've had conversations as to whether or not this movie constitutes a horror. But it's not talking about Twin Peaks? No. It's a film. Twin Peaks had firewalks with me, but after the television show. Eraserhead? No. I think Eraserhead is unsettling enough to where you could call it a horror film. You've never even seen it. I've seen a lot of it. (laughs) I've never seen it all the way through. You're right. No, it's Mulholland Drive. It was supposed to be a TV show? Yeah, well, originally. I guess that makes sense. 
Because a lot of random shit happens. Yeah, uh I guess you could turn that And it's kind of like setting up subplots that never pay off, and so you can kind of tell. There's a lot going on in Mulholland Drive. I love Mulholland Drive. I don't know what your problem with it is. Okay. I think it might be my favorite David Lynch film. Yeah. It's probably... There's such a... Such a lively group to choose from. I couldn't. I couldn't imagine having to pick a favorite Lynch Kelsey's, film. Kelsey's not the biggest David Lynch fan. No. It's probably the most coherent of his films, though, that I can think of. That's like straight through. This is a plot, although it, it, it does go places. Are you fucking kidding me? No. Mulholland Drive is the least cohesive. You think? Blue Velvet is a complete storyline. Oh, I guess that's a good point. Yeah, no wonder you don't like David Lynch. (laughs) (laughs) I happen to enjoy some of his stuff, but I really do like Mulholland Drive. I like it a lot. And it has, what's his face in it? I I think, did I already ask another question about Justin Trudeau? Who? Justin Trudeau. Jesus Christ. Justin Trudeau is the... Prime Minister of Canada. What is his name? Thoreau. Justin Thoreau. Okay, from uh, Leftovers? Leftovers? Yes. Uh, (laughs) He's the director in Mulholland Drive. Anyway, God. (laughs) Alright, first up in this double feature. The late night double feature feature show. Is the 1979 version of When a Stranger Calls. Starring Carol Kane, Charles Durning, Tony Beckley, and Colleen Dewurst. Written by Steve Feakey, Fred Walton, and directed by Fred Walton. What is When a Stranger Calls about? Do you want the, the story of the film, or do you want the premise of the film? Because I I did not remember the, the, the middle of this film. <laughs> but basically, it's the urban legend of... The babysitter gets the phone call and says, have you checked the children? And the idea is that she, she's supposed to go up there and find them dead. And you're supposed to figure out that, oh, the killer called from inside the house. But this movie takes that premise and is like, what if we went after the guy yeah. outside of the home? Right. Yeah. What if What if the chase for this guy went Didn't on further? Didn't end within the house. Yeah. Uh-huh. It is not streaming anywhere officially, but it is on YouTube for free right now. Yes. So it's easily available. Should people watch this movie, Kelsey? Yes, but be aware that it dips a lot in the middle. It dips. (laughs) Yes, the pacing really gets weird in the middle, but it's not that it's not interesting. I was interested the entire time. But yes, the pacing does slow down considerably in the middle. Yes. Uh, but you would recommend people watch it? Yes. So would I, especially since you can get it free on YouTube. Yes. It's not that long. It feels long. Well, because, okay, so here's the thing. <laughs> this movie was originally just a short called The Sitter. The beginning. And it, and it was just the beginning 20 minutes. The beginning is great. Yes, and, and that's why great. that's why this movie is as big as it is. And there's this weird sort of like horror movie thread that begins with a famous horror director and ends with a famous horror director with Fred Walton in the middle. Fred Walton shot 
the sitter, which is just the opening section. That's a separate thing. It's not the actual 20 minutes we see in this film. It's a completely separate short that just tells the first 20 minutes of the story. Oh. That was in 77. Then in 78, what came out? Halloween? And Halloween was really, really fucking popular and a huge success. And he's like, oh, well, a babysitter running from a killer? I can turn my 20-minute short, which I just made, prior to Halloween and make it a full movie. So you can kind of tell that one story is very self-contained and then it's like, you know, cut to five or seven or whatever, how many years later. And he escapes and from, he the, escapes mental from the mental asylum. And what happens now? And it's like the bulk of the movie is just tacked onto the end of this 20 minute short. But that first 20 minutes is Perfect. very famous and it is very good. So then Wes Craven. So we got John Carpenter's Halloween. Fred Dalton makes his 20-minute short The Sitter into a full-length movie When a Stranger Calls. Wes Craven sees When a Stranger Calls, likes it so much and likes that opening 20 minutes so much that that's how he starts Scream. Very similar way. So, Are you positive? I understand the similarity, but are you sure that he made it based on that? Well, I don't think he made it based on that, but that's where it came. That's the inspiration for it, yes. Is very famous. There's no escaping this movie. There's no escaping the fact that Wes Craven saw this movie and then made Scream and had an opening scene completely removed almost from the rest of the movie where like the actual bulk of the plot where a main character who's not seen for most of the rest of the movie even like talks to a crazy killer on the phone and then, oh, it turns out he's really there and he can see her the whole time. And yeah, you know, but turned it into. It's just funny because, again, it's like Black Christmas never happened. Nobody yes. cares about Black Christmas. No, Black Christmas <laughs> is a greatly overlooked movie. It's one of our absolute fav- favorites. The and calls yes, are coming from inside the house. It absolutely had an impact on this movie. There's <sighs> no question about that. But everybody attributes it to Halloween. Yeah, well, Halloween had the babysitter thing. Halloween popularized the babysitter slasher thing. Whether it was first or not, it popularized it. You should absolutely watch the movie. You could take our advice or leave it, whatever. But when we get back, we will talk about 1979's When a Stranger Calls. This audience is watching what the film critic for After Dark magazine has called the most terrifying movie I have ever seen. Leave me alone! Jill, we traced the call. It's coming from inside the house. Just get out of that house. Every babysitter's nightmare becomes real. When a Stranger Calls, rated R. Now playing at Columbia Premier Theaters. All right, Kelsey, get us started. How does When a Stranger Calls begin? The babysitter shows up and the babysitter is Carol Kane. Carol Kane? How do we know Carol Kane, Kelsey? Mostly I know her from Scrooged. Yes. I know she's been in lots of other things. Where she kicks Bill Murray in the nuts, grabs him by the nuts. One of those. I can't remember. She like punches and slaps Yeah, she's really abusive to Bill Murray in that movie. Oh, sometimes the truth is painful, Frank. Uh But it's made your cheeks all rosy and your eyes bright 
Yes. And yes, that's where a lot of people know her from, but she's also in The Princess Bride. I'm not a witch, I'm your wife. She's that one. I'm not sure I want to even want to be that anymore. <laughs> Liar! Liar! Get back, witch! I'm not a witch, I'm your wife! But after what you just said, I'm not even sure I want to be that anymore! She's the grandma from the Addams Family movies. <laughs> but yes, she's going to be in some horror movies that we see in the future. Awesome. Looking forward to it. <laughs> Yeah, so she is a babysitter watching kids that have already been put to bed, and she just needs because to be there in the house. they just got over the flu. So that might sound a little unbelievable, but it is when you know that kids, when they're sick, yeah, uh-huh. you want to put them to sleep as quickly as possible. <laughs> and the mom explains, we might be home early, or we might not be home until after midnight. Now, both movies will do this. They will put that cap at just after midnight. But we don't know when the movie starts. Neither this version or the remake bothers to tell us when she shows up. So there should be a very specific amount of time that she should have to deal with this. But because we never get that context. Yeah, they're just kind of setting up the fact that they might be gone longer. And had they come home earlier, this would have all played out differently. But the thing is, is that the killer has a very specific, like, timeline that he can work this in. And it bothers me that neither movie gives us that timeline, because it just kind of feels like this t- this could go on for as long as the movie wants it to until somebody shows up. Yeah, it could literally be the whole movie. Yes. And we'll talk about that later. <laughs> but... She's talking to one of her girlfriends. She's upset because her boyfriend drama, blah, blah, blah. Bobby, who they will use the same name in the remake. Yes. I liked that. Yeah, so did I. There are a few touches in the remake that are like callbacks to this one that are some of the only things to appreciate about that movie. (laughs) Spoilers for our thoughts on that one. But there's drama with her boyfriend, and so she asks her... Drama in the fact that she says, Bobby asked me out. But I said no because I'm your best friend. She goes, you are my best friend. I guess. What a piece of shit, friend. <laughs> what is this conversation? Like, I was just sitting there the whole movie, like, I mean, the whole scene, like. Yeah, both what of these girls. Of both of these girls like the same guy. And the guy asked one of the girls out. But it's almost like, you know, hey, if two girls like the same guy and the guy asked one of them out. Are both of the girls supposed to say no? If that first girl got asked out, would she have said no? Obviously not, because she's upset that she's not going out with him. So, double standard, total bitch. (laughs) The friend gives Bobby the number at this location, which explains why... She continues to answer the phone. She continues to answer the phone, yes. Because... Dr. Mandrakis, or whatever his name is... And they will keep that in the remake. Yeah. Has a service that's supposed to forward all of the messages to his office. So she doesn't need to answer the phone at all. We all know the story. So we all know what's coming. That's why there are two phone lines in the house. Yes. So she starts getting calls that ask her, have you checked the children? Bobby? What? Now, what I think is interesting, because the my favorite UL here... Oh, just my favorite UL. <laughs> ...is that you're supposed to come upstairs, check the children, see that they're dead. 
But Carol Kane does not go up and She doesn't fucking check the children ever. Yeah. Like, ever. I wrote down, seriously, check the fucking children. Like, I know. No. No, meta style, I know what's going to happen. She's going to find the children dead and the killer's going to be there and kill her. (laughs) Like, I know that because they end up finding him, like, bathed in the blood of these children. I, I get that. But... In the context of of her right now, she's getting creepy messages to check the children, and she hasn't heard anything. Check the fucking children. Like, the first time it happens, she doesn't do anything. I agree. She's not even threatened. She just ignores it. Okay. A couple of different issues here. First of all, why does she never check on the children? Because they made it very specific. I wrote it down, even, because the mom kind of makes it kind of a rude point. I don't want that to sound like I said moot point. I said rude. She goes, try not to wake them, okay? Like, she, I wish I could remember the exact words. Mm -hmm. Please, try not to wake them. She's very specific, don't wake my children up. Yeah. Because they're sick. That's her reasoning for being such a bitch about it. But that's the point. Like, so Carol has been told not to check on the children. And if you've ever been a babysitter, huh, not having to check on the kids would be an amazing thing. Oh, yeah, it's totally awesome. I have never once shown up to a babysitting job and been told, oh, they're asleep. You just have to sit here. No, I had to entertain the fucking kids. Also, like, you're there to make sure the children survive the night like that's why the babysitter is there if anything happens you're 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 a responsible individual that can uh, get the right help or contact the parents or whatever so to be told no do not check on my children all you are is just literally another body in the house (laughs) like what's supposed to have like what are you supposed to do you're there in case there's an emergency right but that's it like yes yeah Absolutely. But seriously, I have, I'm sorry, you're just going to ignore that call? Check the fucking children. And then later on, seriously, check the children. But secondly, you have to think about, okay, there, there are so many different reasons why I can think of why she would ignore this phone call. First of all, the mother. Second of all, it's the 70s. So she just thinks that he's just prank calling her. Yeah. Right? Most people would think that the first time they get the phone call. And then as we watch, she gets more and more scared and worried, right? Yeah. When this, she this contacts, scene escalates very good. When she contacts the authorities, well, they basically tell her, what the fuck do you want us to do about it? Right. What are we supposed to do about exactly it? Which is exactly what she's been told her entire life. And so she's not thinking of this as like him actually talking to her about the children. She's thinking of this as a creepy dude. Mm-hmm. Who's treating her badly because she's an alo- a girl alone, and she just expects it, kind of. Yeah. So, like, girls have been brought up to just be like, oh, well, guys be guys, and they be creepy. And think about Black Christmas, right? Yeah. They had a guy calling them constantly, making basically rape threats, and they were expected to just be like, ah, fuck it. Yeah. So when a guy calls you and says, have you checked the children? He's just fucking with you. So she's just like, I guess I just have to ignore this because she's been told not to check on the children. So this guy, this random person on the call, isn't going to upset her that much. She's kind of almost expecting men to treat her this way. Interesting. 
Yeah, I guess. I'd like to point out here that the first time she gets the call, there's a fun, like, dun, dun, dun type of musical sting. Yeah. But there's also whimsical chimes. Yeah, th- so the the tension of this opening scene it ramps up throughout very effectively the ringing gets louder and more obnoxious more jarring every single time a phone calls it, that escalates as well throughout the length uh, of the scene and it's fucking terrifying like i wrote that down I said this scene is really this scene really is fucking terrifying. I've gotten chills several times even though I know what's going on and perhaps especially so. It's good filmmaking here. Like just her walking around this silent house and at one point when she feels especially threatened she grabs a cane. Get it? Why does Dr. Mandrakis have like 147 canes? Because it was the 70s, I guess. it was a style choice yes. that had nothing to do with necessity. <laughs> it's like an umbrella stand full of canes. <laughs> but Carol Kane grabs a cane. Like, her wandering around this giant house, well, giant for the time, I guess. Well, also, this is when open concept would be very useful. Yes, you mentioned that while we were watching it, yeah. Most homes... We all know this are sectioned off. <laughs> yeah, every room is its own. Making it way more terrifying to watch this teenage girl have to check each room. Yeah. Imagine if every house was just open concept. You could just look around and be like, there's nobody in here. <laughs> but no, she has to quietly uh, creep through each room to look for it. I loved the finding of the ice falling in the freezer. Yes. I especially love they kept that for the remake. Yeah, but it it doesn't work nearly as well in the remake as it does in this one. Why? Because they treat it like a jump scare. Well, of course they do. That's all the remake knows what to do. Right. In this one, it's like there's a noise. <sighs> what is that noise? Where it's where is it coming from? And then the tension is extended. It's not like a jump scare. It's it's extended over time. And then you get this release when she realizes it's it's the ice machine. And then she takes a popsicle. <laughs> yes, uh, which is also in the remake. Except that in the remake, it's an ice cream bar. So she keeps getting these phone calls and she eventually goes for the Jameson. Yes. <laughs> She's getting so stressed out. <laughs> uh, but yeah, she calls she calls the cops at one point. The cops, like like Kelsey said, are like, like what? What are we supposed to do about it? Here's here's what you can do, though. Go grab a whistle, blow into it really hard. The next time he calls, it'll blow out his eardrums, and he won't call back. Because all as far as they're concerned, yeah, this happens all the time. We get so many calls a night, so like it's just a prank caller fucking with you. So fuck fuck with them back. And but you know what? I'll be here all night. He's he's relatively kind, and but. A lot of her responses really made me think of Black Christmas. Uh-huh. Is this emerge is this an emergency? Yes. No. Yeah, well, I guess not. Yeah, it it's that that feeling, it's it's when women know that they're in danger. Yeah. I understand this to a point. Police officers are just like, 
You feel danger. We're sorry. What do you want us to do about it? And that is exactly what criminals live off of. Yes. People who want to harass you, Mm -hmm. they love that. They know there's nothing police officers can do until they've actually done something to you. Right. So you get to live in fear. Yep. And it also has to do, again, with the female, like, feeling of, I feel useless. Yeah. As opposed to when a man feels like this, it's like they they do something about it. As opposed to women that are like, what should I do? And everyone's like, I don't know. No, I feel you. I absolutely feel you. This is, it's a lot of, like, abdication of responsibility from the police because they can only enforce the laws that are there. And even then they're limited in the ways that they can enforce them. So doing something about a prank caller is difficult work and might just end up being a fucking prank caller. Odds are it's just a fucking prank caller and you're overreacting. And obviously being told you're overreacting is really fucked up for the woman, right? Like, cause obviously in this case, she's not overreacting, but it's an abdication of that responsibility. I can just say you're overreacting and then I don't have to do anything. Mm-hmm. But if I accept the fact that this is a normal reaction and you are being terrorized, then I have to do something. And what am I supposed to do? But that's my responsibility. So, like, I'd have a responsibility and couldn't do anything about it. Well, that makes me look bad. So you have to be the one that's overreacting. And that's the unfortunate reality a lot of the times, especially for young women who are being terrorized by crazy men. But in any case, she ends up expressing her fear more strongly. Well, he ends up saying to her, why haven't you checked? checked As if he knows she hasn't. Yes, I am watching you. Yeah. Why haven't you checked the children? She tells the police that and they're like, okay, well, look, here's what will happen. Next time he calls, try to keep him on the line for a little bit. We'll try to trace the call. I'll contact the the the, uh, the telephone company and see if they can't trace the call again. And she's like, I don't know. He only calls and immediately hangs up. Well, how am I supposed to do that? You got to talk to him. Yeah. Just like they do in Black Christmas. Yes, absolutely. No, there's a lot going on here that's just a straight rip off of Black Christmas. <laughs> Except sorority girls, you trade out for one babysitter who's there alone. So this is when she finally, she decides to talk to him. Can you see me? Yes. What do you want? Your blood all over me. That was so fucking creepy. (laughs) Like that's one of those chills moments I got where it's just like silence and he's not saying anything, but he's staying on the line. And then she asks him what he wants and he pauses a little bit and then says your blood all over me. Is that what you wanted? No. What do you want? Your blood all over me. I was like, oh, Jesus. Could you imagine if you were Carol Kane in this moment? Holy fuck. That is terrifying. Yes, I can. Jesus. I, in college, had a person who would call me and breathe on the phone a lot. Mm-hmm. It was very scary. Yeah, nobody wants to call up a dude and harass them over the phone. <laughs> <laughs> so I never dealt with that. No, I know. It's it's very creepy. And I mean, 
Look, most of the time as a babysitter, you're just bored. <laughs> but when the kids are asleep, if you're if you're if your clients told you we won't be home till like two a.m. and you would put the kids to bed and it's like midnight and it was silent and it got dark, it would get a little bit creepy. Yeah, I, I'll admit that. Very rarely would parents ever tell me they would be home that late. Mm-hmm. But there was like once or twice, and it was just like. I'm a 12-year-old girl. <laughs> we would very rarely have babysitters. I can't remember if I told the story on the show before or not, but one of the one of the young women across the street from us would watch us occasionally. And I just remember catching her in my kitchen making out with her boyfriend and like not knowing that was anything. <laughs> like so the idea that babysitters invite their boyfriends over to make out over at the house where they're babysitting. That's entirely true. It happened to be. Yes, we're spending a lot of time on these first 20 minutes, but it is a bulk of the reason why this movie is famous. So we finally get to the point where they call her back. Oh my God, he's in the house. Get out of the house. Yeah, and they're not like mincing any words like immediately. It's not like in Black Christmas where it's like, hey, just don't panic. (laughs) Listen to me and just do as I say. Could you just please get out of the house? Now just put the phone back on the hook, walk to the front door, and leave the house. No, it's, hey, Carol Kane, he's in the fucking house. Get the fuck out of there. Jill, this is Sergeant Sacker. Listen to me. We've traced the call. It's coming from inside the house. The squad car's going over there right now. Just get out of that house. <laughs> Bob! Answer me! <laughs> what was What's-Her-Face's name? The one who was the house mother in the remake? I can't remember. Oh my god. Phil! Phil! <laughs> Phil! Answer me! <laughs> God, Black Christmas is so good. <laughs> it's really wonderfully uh, done. She runs. We can see the shadow coming down the stairs. Mm-hmm. She opens the door, and it's like slow-mo, and she like screams and like f- turns, because standing there is the detective. Charles Durning, yeah. It, it's really great. I love this scene. Yeah. And that's kind of how that scene just ends, is on the close-up of Charles Durning, who's arrived. So Charles Durning was in a couple of things. You probably, most, maybe, I I think I know him most as um, the governor or mayor or whatever he is, Papio Daniel in Oh Brother Where Art Thou? He's also in Dog Day Afternoon with Carol Kane. He's in the Muppet movie. Anyway, you absolutely know him. (laughs) He actually passed away in 2012 on Christmas Eve. He was 89 years old. He was getting up there in this movie. So cut to seven years later, and the dude that they, they caught him, he went to a mental asylum. He has now escaped. Yes, and Charles Durning has retired from the force, and he's become a private detective. 
And he is going to track down this man who, it's not a mystery, they know exactly who he is. His name is Curtis Duncan. It's just 1979, and they have trouble finding people if they don't want to be found. And this is where the bulk of the movie takes place. And we're headed in towards the lull, and then we'll head right back out of it again. Colleen Dewurst becomes kind of the main female protagonist for a while, but only in this middle portion of the movie, and then she's just gone again. And then what do we know her from? She was in, I mean, you know her from the Anne of Green Gables movies. Ah, yes! I was like, dude, I know her so well. She's also in The Dead Zone, you know, the Stephen King story. They were also in Annie Hall. I say they, Colleen Dewurst and Carol Kane, were in Annie Hall together. Never they, saw it. They also don't share any scenes in Annie Hall, just like they don't share any scenes in this movie. That's funny. Which is interesting. We could kind of breeze through this part a little bit here. There, There's a whole lot more of women just... You watch these movies... And I feel like a lot of people are like, why would you be okay with that? Why wouldn't you make this guy get out of your house? Oh why, my god. <laughs> why wouldn't you slap the shit out of this guy? Why would you be nice to him? And it's like, if you're not a woman, yeah. you don't understand. Right. Because we are put in positions where if we are just plain rude, then we're a bitch. Well, I mean, Tracy is her name. Tracy's rude. Yes, to a point. To a point. She's brusque and... But see how people think that she's being a bitch? Oh, totally, yeah. Uh huh. She's like, she doesn't... So, Kurt hits on her in a bar. And meanwhile... Very creepily. Yeah, meanwhile, Charles Charles Durning is searching for this guy, talks to the to the therapist, talks to all, all these people to try to track him down, ends up talking to his old police precinct people who are giving him assistance and letting him look at the case notes. Uh, he mentions, by the way, that it's an old case, so nobody in the police force is, is paying attention to it. And <laughs> it's like- Who cares that a guy escaped from a right? asylum? Yeah. Okay, he killed two children only seven years ago, but it's an old case. Sure, but the new escape happened. That's new, and that's also illegal. <laughs> what? Like, that- but, that drives me nuts. But anyway. But I think the idea here is that he was so mistreated at the mental asylum because who gives Electroshock a shit? therapy and all of that stuff. Well, I'm, you know. You kill children, fucking deal with you consequences. Is, no, right, but it is not our place to be cruel and unusual. And I think electroshock, for the purposes of punishment, is cruel and unusual. It's like a little electric chair. You know, I don't feel if it were your kids but anyway uh, i feel very strongly about our justice system anyway he is so creepy so a guy finally steps in everybody else is just like what a weirdo poor girl not gonna do shit to help her yeah. one guy finally steps in and he's the asshole apparently right because he kicks the shit out of this guy who's nobody kind else of gave a fuck that he was being an asshole to this woman yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of times you see how things sort of play out. Like, okay, he's being creepy. Nobody's really paying attention to their conversation. It's not until she yells at him. Because he tries to grab her. Right, but nobody's nobody's even watching them. She yells at him and moves away. And I think everyone else is like, 
Oh, good. She handled it. Yes, but she moves away like twice. And both times he sits next to her and nobody cares. But that's when the, the dude steps in. Like, first of all, in public, nobody wants to get involved in awkward situations like that. Nobody wants to get involved. So it's a lot of like watching and seeing how it plays out and then maybe only intervening when it's absolutely necessary. But this guy is the chivalrous one, but he's also super drunk and super aggressive. And so he will not stand down, which is good. Good and for him. And then she feels bad, well, which so, is a thing. Yes, it's no, a real I get it. thing. I get it because this dude is harassing this other guy. Totally makes sense. Kurt spits in his face. So the dude pounds the shit out of him. He goes a little overboard. Yes. Nobody knows he's a murderer. He's just a guy that's way too uh, aggressive in pursuing the interests of a woman. And that puts him in the wrong, but it doesn't mean he needs a broken nose. But anyway, it is not wrong for the guy to have stepped in and, and helped out when obviously this man was not respecting her wishes and leaving her alone, but she just ends up leaving. She's like, I don't know why I come to this place. And she ends up leaving Kurt all bloodied. I'm just going to call him the killer. It feels too humanizing calling him Kurt. The killer ends up following her and it's super fucking creepy. And finally she makes it home and they run into each other. And she's like, what the fuck are you doing here? And he says, I came to apologize. Ah, it's you. What do you want? I came to apologize. By following me to my home? And she's in her doorway, and her door is open, and instead of going, okay, I accept your apology, good night, she gets a phone call. And says, excuse me. That's a perfect opportunity to go, okay, I got to get this call. Never come here again and close the door. No, she leaves the door open like, I'm going to be right back. Let me just answer this phone call. Like you were already creeped out by the guy. You already didn't like him. But because you were the quote unquote reason he got the shit beat out of him, which no, he was the reason he got the shit beat out of him. You feel bad. And so you're willing to entertain a conversation with this guy who followed you the fuck home without your knowledge or consent. Like, and what not okay. And saying to her? I'm new in town. I'm new in town. Oh, yes. He says I'm new in town. <laughs> Excuse me. I'm new in town and it gets worse. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Because I think the idea is that due to his treatment, mm -hmm. he has forgotten who he is. I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think it's that he suppresses these urges and then his violent aggressions kind of bubble up every once in a while. But there are times when he, like, remembers who he is. Yeah, but that's when those sorts of, like, flat he's trying to suppress that. It's not you that think he's forgotten. So? I, think, I think it's supposed to be that because of the electroshock therapy, he's forgotten who he is. I I think that's, that's there's not enough evidence to support that would be my guess. But either way, whether he's forgotten or not, it's not something that's at the forefront of his mind. Because I don't believe his original intent with this woman is to kill her. Agreed. I don't think it is either. But when he gets beat up, when he gets rejected, his natural urges are the first step, which is to do creepy shit, <laughs> which he doesn't 
think, hey, maybe I shouldn't be doing this stuff. <laughs> Not going away when she says to go away. Following her home. Uh, without her knowledge, uh, walking into her house when he was not invited in. These are all creepy fucking urges, and he just follows them. That's step number one. And then eventually these things sort of like escalate until he gets to, I'm really upset, which is why he spit in the dude's face, and it's why he gets the, the urge to kill. I do, so, okay, so Chris mentioned earlier Oh, she's rude. I don't think she's being rude at all. I think brusque is the proper word. That's what I said. I know you said that later. Because she's just very forthright. Like, the way that he approaches her in the bar, she goes to light a cigarette. He comes up with his uh, lighter, trying to be all suave. And uh -huh. she's just like, nope, and takes out her own lighter. This is my, but this is my point. I'm not saying she did anything wrong here. Don't get me wrong. But. Someone offers you something, whether you want them to or not, and you just flat out ignore them. Like, I'm not saying that's inappropriate necessarily. I'm not even saying that she shouldn't have done it. I'm not trying to victim blame here. What I am saying is that that's really fucking rude. Anyone does anything like open a door for you and... Even if you didn't want them to, I can open my own damn door would be very rude. Ignoring them, rude. Saying thank you whether you want to thank them or not is the polite thing to do. But she doesn't know who he is. She doesn't know what his intentions are. She doesn't know fucking anything that we already know about this guy. He's just a guy who comes up and tries to light her cigarette. And instead of saying, no thanks, I got this. She just looks at him, turns back, and lights her own cigarette. I agree. She could have said no thanks. The other thing I was going to say is... This is something that you probably don't know. Whenever a man offers me anything, I'm terrified to say thank you. Okay. That's a fear I live with every day. Okay. Because granted, granted. I cannot be nice to a man uh -huh. without the fear of him thinking, she's interested in me. Because that has happened to me so many times. Sure. Just because I am polite and mm -hmm. kind, I have had men think she's interested in me. I get it. We suck. I totally get that. <laughs> I totally get that. But if you're worried about the behavior of, of, of a man, do you think being rude to him is the appropriate choice too? I think that sometimes it's the only way to get it through to a guy. I, I think it's dangerous no matter what you do. And I yes. think that's totally fucked up. I agree. It's totally fucked up. But I don't think, well, if I'm nice to him, he might think I'm coming on to him is a reason to be rude because there's negative consequences for that, too. I don't think they're that one justifies the so other. So we're fucked either way. I, I, I agree. It sucks. I think that it's very telling that she is used to men trying to pick up her on a bar and she's just not interested. Yeah. And this is her way of telling you, mm -hmm. I am not no, I interested. Think, I think there's some implied storytelling going on here. I don't know why we're talking about this so much, but. Because I don't think men have any idea. I agree. What it's like. No, we've had these conversations on the show in the past. We've had them in person, off air, that men just don't get it. That when you talk to a woman and you're standing between her and the exit, that's threatening. And as a man, I can tell you from experience, most of the time, you have no idea. <laughs> you have absolutely no idea. But that's not an excuse. Anyway, 
why I brought it up is because I loved I loved her response when she got off the phone, realized he was sitting in her house, oh, Jesus and Christ. she starts laughing, and I was like, I probably would too. And she goes, look, you can't come in here. <laughs> <laughs> look, you can't come in here. Oh. Like, yeah. What the fuck? Yeah. You know, like, just, just because this is a situation that women find themselves in. It's just like, look at this dude. Mm-hmm. Look at this asshole. Yeah. And he's like, can we have a cup of coffee? No, you better go. I've got nowhere to go. Well, you can't stay here. Well, can't we just have a coffee? Maybe. When? Maybe tomorrow. Okay, when? Yeah, this is totally fucked. This- It's absolutely real behavior. I've had this conversation. 100%. At least twice in my life, I have had men who would not leave my home. Yes, it's because not, not only the leaving home thing, but the like not accepting vague responses- The reason is, and this is not a justification, I'm going to preface this with, I'm not trying to justify this behavior. I'm trying to explain the behavior. When you try to be vague to a man in response who wants to, like, see you or hang out with you. And the same thing works with friends. Even friends, you're just like, oh, we got to hang out sometime. And they're like, okay, when? (laughs) It fucking sucks when you're trying to be vague on purpose. They also know, whether intentional or not on your part, <laughs> they know that the more specific plans are, the more likely they are to happen. The thing is, is that when it's with friends, it's so obvious. Yes. <laughs> Look, if you're trying to get out of seeing a friend, there's probably a reason. Anyway, <laughs> he's getting more specific because he has a goal. An end goal in mind. And that end goal is I want to see this person socially, right? And so we're going to make a plan and it's going to happen. If we do not set a plan right now, it's never going to happen. So he's pursuing that goal for that reason. However, the problem with that mindset is that it completely disregards the will of the other person and what the other person wants. Hence, I'm not trying to justify anything. I am, however, trying to examine why people behave this way they think they're completely justified because oh it'll fall through the plans will fall through unless we're specific and it's really fucking creepy so that's when she decides to finally lie and be like look my boyfriend's coming over you need to get the fuck out of here please leave now i like you is all his response like his responses are so I'm not listening to anything yes. you're saying. Uh-huh. Look, do you want me to call the cops is when he finally says, okay, I'll leave, which is what I've had to do. Yeah. Twice I've had to be like, I will call the police. Yeah. I'm sorry. I apologize on behalf of all men. Anyway, he leaves. Eventually she gets him out and she closes the door and locks it. And then she's standing at the door. And he wriggles the doorknob why are you not calling the police she takes that opportunity to close the chain lock she doesn't waste any time either so it's obvious that he knows that she just did that and it's obvious that that's fucking terrifying again but she does nothing well i think there is something implied because when charles durning is going through the reports he knows to contact her 
Oh, you're right. So she did make a complaint. Yes. Okay, you're right. But then that doesn't make any sense because then when the guy shows up at first, she's like, I'm not telling you anything. Right. Well, because he he doesn't have a badge. So Charles Durning shows up at her place and he's like, yeah, I have a badge. If you open the door, I'll show it to you. And so she opens the door and lets him in and... Like, where's your badge? I don't have a badge. I have a license, and I don't have it with me. <laughs> um, excuse me. Also, like, you're mad at her for, like, not acquiescing to your demands, but her acquiescing is exactly what got her into trouble. She shouldn't believe you either. <laughs> you're being, you are being very Bad fucking job. creepy. <laughs> But ultimately, he sits her down, and she's being very, like, confrontational in the fact that, like, she's withholding any information. She doesn't want to talk to this guy because she doesn't know who he is. He's not a police officer or anything like that. Until finally, he sits her down and tells her exactly who he is and what happened. Killed two children with nothing but his bare hands. Yes. <laughs> He's escaped from the insane asylum. Seven years ago, he murdered two children, broke into the house and found them asleep in bed. It was a little boy, four and a half, and his little three-year-old sister. After the coroner's investigation, the bodies were taken to the mortuary where the undertaker took one look at them and said their bodies couldn't be reconstructed for the burial without six days of steady work. Then he asked what had been the murder weapon, because looking at the mess in front of me, couldn't imagine what had been used. The coroner told him there had been no murder weapon. The killer had used only his hands. It's very fucking creepy. <laughs> Will you work with me? Will you work with me? And so she ends up giving him more information. So basically she's going to be bait. I don't remember any of this part of the movie. <laughs> so he want he's like do you think he will come back? And she says I don't know maybe. And he's like basically I want you to be bait for me. Mhm. <laughs> so like he's watching her. But it's like you know this guy's MO. He's already in the house, man. But he doesn't realize that. So, but she gets there. He's in her house. He gets away, of course. We play this cat and mouse game. Well, because Charles Durning is old and overweight, he ends up, like, not being able to breathe as he chases this guy and, like, feels his heart and can't keep pursuing this guy. For Charles Durning, this is the last case that he needs to take care of. He will not be satisfied until he captures this guy, but... He doesn't want to bring him in. He tells his buddy this uh, in the force. He tells him, from here on, I go it alone. And Charlie, his friend, says, what's the point of chancing it, Cliff? We'll let you take the credit. Let us capture this guy. You can get all the credit you want. And he says, no, I'm going to kill him, Charlie. From here on, I go it alone. <laughs> Why take a chance on it, Cliff? We'll let you have the credit. No. I'm going to kill him, Charlie. And Charlie is like, oh, oh, I see you. You you mean this. Okay. I'll let you kill him. But it has to be clean. Like, if, if any of this can be traced back to you, I'm going to have to arrest you. But I understand what you mean, and I will turn a blind eye to this. So there's this whole long part where he is staying in a place for homeless people. And this is when he has memories of himself being locked up in the asylum. And we watch him cry in, like, present day. 
thinking about this, which is why I, I said I don't think he remembered who he was or what happened to him. I think he's crying from a few different things. Number one, all the shit that they did to him there. I also think that he doesn't necessarily like that his life is what it is, and that's going to cause him to cry. Not necessarily that he he's an innocent victim of his brain, but I think there's just a lot going on in his head, and that can cause anyone to be overwhelmed with emotion. But he ends up escaping from the homeless shelter. Yeah, as Charles Durning is like going in there with a flashlight, like shining it on all their faces as they're sleeping, he ends up getting out. And that's when he decides to go after Carol Kane, and I think it's because he's remembered who he is. Uh, okay. Okay. Because I can this see whole that. time he hasn't been thinking about Carol Kane. Yeah. And all of a sudden he remembers these things, and he's like, oh, fuck! I was supposed to kill somebody. You know how I said Colleen Dewhurst becomes the main female protagonist at this portion of the movie, and then you never see her again? She's gone now. We won't (laughs) ever see her again. She was attacked. Kurt got away. The killer got away. And then we just never see her again. The cop almost gets him and, like, throws a knife. Yeah. But misses. uh Um, All this shit happens. And then our killer goes crazy again. No one can see me. I don't exist. Yes. I'm not here. No one can see me anymore. Nobody can hear me. No one touches me. I'm not here. I don't exist. I was never born. No one can hear me. No one touches me. I'm here. I don't exist. I wasn't born. You can't see me. <laughs> it's like, what? It's like in that uh, comedy grandma's boy. No one can see me. How can they see me? Is that Grandma's boy? Yeah. He thinks he's invisible. (laughs) Are you sure that you're not thinking of mystery men? No, it's definitely Grandma's boy. Okay. Because Kel from Keenan and Kel is the invisible boy. He can turn invisible, but only when nobody's looking. That's his superpower. (laughs) No, there's... (laughs) I forget why, but he, like... He's trying to like spy on them or something. It's the it's the guy he works for, mm-hmm. and he's up against a wall, and he's like, "No one can see." I've only seen that movie once. You've oh, oh so funny. <laughs> anyway, he decides he's gonna go after Carol Kane. So Carol Kane, she's now married. Now she married has with two, two children kids. within seven years. Yeah, she's a babysitter. <laughs> seven years later, married with two kids. That was fast. If I were to guess, I'd be like, okay, so maybe she was like a senior in high school. So maybe she at the at the top, she was like 18. Yeah. So that would mean she's now 25, which I guess in the 70s, maybe you would you would have gotten married that early no, no, for but, sure. Yes, but also think about the fact that she wasn't dating who her husband is now. Are so we she sure had she to, married Bobby? I don't know if no, they ever say that. No, her husband's name is Steven. Oh. So, like, 
It's a different guy she hadn't already been dating. She starts dating this guy, gets married to him, and has two kids in a very short amount of time. Very quickly. When she's very young. In less time than we've been dating. (laughs) I mean, my mother in the 70s, my father asked her to marry him a month after dating. Yeah. They got married less than a year later. Yeah. However... It, my mom didn't want to have kids right away, so she waited five years before she had yeah. my brother. Mm-hmm. So, like, damn. <laughs> damn, Carol Kane. Yeah, it's not that it's unspeakably unheard of or anything like that, <laughs> but it is just, it's... Boom, boom, boom. It's worth remarking on. It's remarkable insofar as it's worth remarking on that it's very fast. So anyway, he gets a promotion, a big promotion, and so he's taking her out to dinner And they've hired a babysitter, Sharon, to watch their two kids now. While they're at the restaurant. Oh, but before she leaves, I love it. I love it. She's talking to the babysitter and she's, Uh of course, being like, you know, you should, these the numbers, all the same things you would normally do. Uh She goes, you know, 911 is the emergency number, right? Now, I I have the number of the restaurant here and you know the number for police and emergency is 911. You know that, right? Honey, in 10 seconds, I'm going to eat this staircase. Yes, Lord and Master. (laughs) Yeah, it's 78. Because it was new! Well, I mean, it was like the late 60s or something like that, so (laughs) you'd think they would know by then, but I guess it wasn't as widespread. In any case, she gets a telephone call. The maitre d' or whomever comes by and is like, hey, there's a phone call for you. And she hears Kirk Duncan's voice. Have you checked the children? Hello? Have you checked the children? Children. She freaks out in a great performance by Carol Kane. Yes. And calls the babysitter and the babysitter's like, what? What, what? What's wrong? What's going on? And then the phone call gets disconnected. They get a hold of the police. The police take them home. And nothing's wrong. Everything's fine. Children are safe. Sharon gets sent home. And Jill, who is Carol Kane's character, she is dressed for bed. And I have written down here, oh, no. Is that really what you're going to wear for the climax of this movie? <laughs> it is a hideous nightgown. <laughs> That she has on. Like the fact that she's wearing a nightgown. And that's what our main character is going to be wearing for the climax of this movie. Yep. (laughs) So anyway, Durning's friend in the force hears about this incident happening. And he contacts Durning and tells him, hey, I might have a lead on this guy again. He called the original victim. You know, yada, yada, yada. So Durning tries to call Jill. Carol Kane's character, but the line's been disconnected. Hmm. So Jill's up. She's nervous. She's been rattled. She's been shaken. She goes downstairs. She pours herself a glass of milk. Then the power goes out. Mm-hmm. But she, like, checks another switch and it works. So it's not the whole house. It's like certain lines. So maybe there's just one of the circuits have blown. As far as she's concerned. But when we find out that the phone line's also been cut, we know that that's not the case. Because that is not how phones work. She goes back to bed. And she's sitting in bed. Her husband's asleep next to her. And the closet door kind of swings open a little bit. And then she hears 
You can't Kurt see me. Duncan's voice, yes, yeah, saying you can't see me or whatever. Etc. Yeah, etc. Etc. <laughs> and she is freaking out. And she's I don't think she's entirely certain if she's really hearing it or if she is being paranoid. Like I think she's a little uncertain, but either way, she's terrified. And she's staring at this closet door, but to no avail, because Kurt Duncan is not in that closet. Kurt Duncan is lying in bed right next to her. It's so creepy. And he spins over and he grabs her. And I think at one point you're like, why doesn't she wake up her husband? And I'm like, I think her husband's dead. (laughs) And sure enough, it wasn't her husband in bed. It was Kurt Duncan, the killer. And he grabs her and there's a fight and he's like trying to strangle her. But Durning arrives and shoots him and kills him. And she's panicking. Where's my husband? Durning opens the closet. Her husband's body comes rolling out because that's what was in the closet. And that's why it was open. But he's still alive. We hear him groaning. And he tells her, your husband's okay. But she is still freaking out and panicking. The children are also fine. Everyone's okay. He was just coming after her. And then we see the view of the house from outside. And then we get. His eyes. His eyes superimposed over the house in a a very cheesy kind of shot. I thought it was creepy. It was a little cheesy. And that's the end of the movie. I should probably point out that Tony Beckley, the man who played the killer, Kurt Duncan, died within months of this movie being released. He was very sick at the time the movie was being filmed. He was in his 50s. Or he was 50 or something like that. He was relatively young. And he was very sick, which is why he looks so disheveled in the movie. I mean, he's supposed to, but added to that is his is his sickly pallor. He died shortly after that. They didn't, the producers didn't want him for this movie. But he was actually friends with Fred Walton. And Fred Walton's like, no, he is the killer. I'm going to make him the killer. And yeah, he made the movie. It was released and, and just a handful of months later, he passed away. Lightning round, Kelsey. Carol Kane reportedly would watch the movie in theaters. And according to her, the first 20 minutes uh, is one of those notorious movie moments where everyone's yelling at the screen. I can confirm that I also was yelling at the screen. (laughs) (laughs) There is a sequel to the movie. When a stranger calls back. Which is some mad magazine titling shit right there. (laughs) Like that is... I can't believe they called it When a Stranger Calls Back. (laughs) But it stars Carol Kane again. It stars Charles Durning again. It is dedicated to to Tony Beckley. I also noticed that the success of our protagonists, regardless of all the happenstance, you know, just a series of events happening in a particular order by chance, regardless of any of that stuff, If you take that out of it, the success of our protagonist hinges entirely on the killer having warned Jill beforehand by calling the restaurant. If he never called the restaurant, she would be dead. Because the only reason Durning showed up is because he heard it from Charlie, his buddy in the force, who heard it from another cop who was talking about the fact that she got called at the restaurant. Good point. If he never called her there, she would be dead right now. I've seen reports that this movie because Yeah, well, I mean think about it, serial killers don't get don't get caught because they're intelligent. Right. They get caught because they're cocky. Mm-hmm. They're narcissistic. 
we talked earlier about how this was made into a feature-length movie because Halloween was so successful, so let's talk about a few of those parallels. There are several of them. First of all, they have an opening murder scene in a house, and the killer is caught and sent to an asylum of some sort, an institution of some sort. Several years go by, and that killer escapes. Someone who was involved in the first portion, which in this case is the police officer, in the case of Halloween is the psychiatrist, is distressed by his escape, even though nobody else appears to be, and follows after him to try to capture him. Their objective is not necessarily to bring them back in, but to kill them. The killer stalks a woman. There are several times the killer almost gets caught by this person who is pursuing them. There's obviously a showdown between the final girl and the killer. The killer will have killed the main girl, but our male lead who's been pursuing the killer this entire time shows up just in time and shoots them. The difference being the stranger in this movie actually dies versus Michael Myers gets away. (laughs) But a lot of this content is, aside from the fact that it starts with this scene establishing that they're a killer and they need to get caught. Everything else that follows Halloween so closely is the stuff he added on because Halloween was so successful, which I thought was pretty interesting. So, Kelsey, what do you think this movie got on Rotten Tomatoes? I'm going to guess 36. 38 out of 16 reviews. When a stranger calls back, on the other hand, got a 50%, but out of six reviews. Wow. Has a Metacritic of 58, which is abnormal that the Metacritic exceeds 50, especially by a full eight points when the Rotten Tomatoes is 12 points below 50. Overrated or underrated? Definitely underrated. Absolutely underrated. We talk about how this movie has a big lull in the middle, and it does. There's a lot of just Charles Durning trying to capture Tony Beckley. But this movie had my attention the entire way through. It was terrifying at several moments. It gave me chills at several moments. There are some there's some iconic stuff here, even though there are also elements that it straight ripped off from both Halloween and Black Christmas. I think it did so successfully. I'm not saying it's as good a movie as either of those by any stretch, but I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a lot. Basically, just all the parts where he's just running after him. I'm like, come on, we could have taken this out. We could have trimmed a lot of the fat on this film. Yeah, but then it wouldn't have been a feature-length film. It's very (laughs) obvious that they're trying to extend the content here to make it full length. But I do enjoy a lot of it, and I think a lot of it is well done. It's extremely tense. There are a lot of, like, on-the-edge-of-your-seat moments, so that's excellent. Yeah. Carol Kane does great in this movie, I think the killer is pretty creepy. Well, I like how... He's more, like, stalkery than he is, like, oh, I'm scared you're going to kill me. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. He's more creepy than he is, like, oh, God, don't Well, he's real. He's not some, some grotesque monster or, you know, a man with a scarred up face, like in the remake. He's he's just a middle-aged man who's right. broken in the head. Right. I think the fact that he only kills two people in the entire movie and we don't even see that 
But they are children. Right. It's a terrifying idea. And he was bathing in their blood. Right. It's a very scary idea, but because we don't see it, and because he doesn't kill anyone else in the film, I guess he doesn't feel as terrifying as, like, Michael Myers. Oh, when he says, what do you want, when she says, what do you want, and he's like, Your blood all over me. That is fucking creepy as Yes, he's creepy as hell. And he is, he is what men really feel like threatening wise. Yeah, uh uh-huh. And that's the problem. Yeah. He's not obviously a killer like Michael Myers. Mm Mm-hmm. Which makes him more threatening. Yeah. Because nobody's looking at him like, oh, we gotta lock this dude up. And he's just out. When he escapes from that asylum, he's just on the streets. And yes, he's homeless. He's new in town. I'm new in town. I'm new in town. <laughs> yes, he's homeless, but like he could get around wherever. He's not hiding from anybody until he knows that Durning is looking for him. Yeah, well, criminals are cocky. That's yeah, why. but also that's why we watch them on. Un- unsolved mysteries yes. and they find them uh-huh. because well, I, they don't think anyone will find them. I think that's two things, right? It's number one, that that's how normal he is, right? That's how average middle-aged man he looks. And number two, that's how much I think he doesn't think of himself as aberrant. He thinks of himself almost as justified. Like he doesn't think he should have gone to prison. Not because he's too good to go to prison or anything like that, but because I think he thinks he's normal. I don't know. I don't know. You know, just like, I I think this could all be one giant metaphor for uncaring, creepy, stalkery men. Just in normal everyday life. Not the ones who kill you, but the ones who end up being like domestic abusers and shit like that. Like, this is the progression. Yes, this shoots the moon and goes straight for child murderer. But, like, short of that, real people get to real abuses following this path that this man does, who doesn't really think of himself as somebody who needs to be hiding because he doesn't think he's done anything wrong. Anyway. I agree. It's a good assessment. I really liked this movie. I will give this. Uh Uh-huh. 73. I'll give it a 75. I'll give it that solid 75. This is a good one. This was a good one. Yeah. Thank you very much, Alex. Thank you, Alex. Next one, not so much. Yeah, before we get there, though, Kelsey, Trivial Pursuit Horror Edition. In 2017's Get Out, what is the name of the place where the consciousness of protagonist Chris Washington is trapped during hypnosis? So now all I can think of is is the Stranger Things upside down. Uh, It's the sunken place. Very good. Yeah. All right, Kelsey. All the footage in the Blair Witch Project 1999 is meant to come from how many cameras used by the backpackers? There's only one cameraman. It's a cameraman, it's a sound guy, and it's the girl. I'm going to guess one. It's two. Fucking... Well, there's like the big professional camera, not like big, there's the professional camera and then there's like the camcorder, you know, the small one that she does, that she does the thing I'm on. sorry thing. Yeah. Uh-huh. 
don't know why everybody loves that movie. Because he does I not really like that do movie. Not get it. I absolutely loved it when I saw it in what was it ninety nine? Yeah, the sequel is something else. <laughs> Book of Shadows. <laughs> I mean, look at that. Look at that first movie. Would you think that Book of Shadows comes next? Like the first one or not? What the fuck was Book of Shadows? I barely remember it. I know I've seen it. I barely remember it, though. Doesn't it all end up being just like a trip? Yeah. Drugs? I don't know if it's drugs, but like, they see shit that's not really there, and... (laughs) It's like on the tape, but it's not on the tape, or something. Anyway... Ugh. I just remember that I like the, the main chick. I liked her style. No, I don't remember that. She's all gothic. Uh, I remember them getting really high and dancing around and tearing up the script or whatever and throwing it in the air. Like, yeah, anyway. She's very the craft. <laughs> when are we going to watch the craft? It's on. It's been, it's been recommended, so it's moved up quite a bit. <laughs> all right, Kelsey. Next up is 2006's. When a stranger calls, rounding out this double feature. The late night double feature picture show. Starring Camilla Bell, Tommy Flanagan, Katie Cassidy, Tessa Thompson, and Lance Henriksen. Written by Jake Wade Wall, based on the 1979 original screenplay by Steve Feeke and Fred Walton. Directed by Simon West. What is this one about? It's the first 20 minutes, but it's the entire movie. Exactly right. <laughs> it, this movie is designed for jump scares. That is all it is. Can is that? I think that's all we have to say, to be perfectly honest. It is $4 to rent <laughs> on iTunes, because apparently it's not streaming for free anywhere. We thought it was on Sony Crackle, but apparently we couldn't find it. It wasn't there. It's $4 to rent on iTunes, and that is $4 too much. I think even if this movie was free, I would say don't bother. Yeah, unless you like jump scares. That's the only thing that this movie is for. That's mm-hmm. all it exists for. And I really, I really do think that that's all we really have to say about it. But we'll go through it if you want to. Yeah, we should talk about a lot of people in this movie are in the Marvel movies. First of all, Tommy Flanagan has a role in Guardians of the Galaxy, but you probably most know him from Braveheart, Gladiator, and Sin City. What is he in? He's the killer. He's got the Glasgow no. smile. What is he in? He's like a side character. He's not a big, important character. Guardians of the Galaxy. He's not a big, important character. Short story, he has that Glasgow smile, sort of scar action going. It's not literally a Glasgow smile, but he did get it in Glasgow <laughs> in a bar fight when he was a DJ. <laughs> uh, they they cut him up with a knife. Scary life of a DJ. <laughs> yeah. Uh, He said in an interview that he doesn't even really think of it anymore. It's just like a wrinkle on his face now. But that is a very distinctive part of his look that people use him a lot for. (laughs) He is the body of the killer. He is not the voice. The voice is Lance Henriksen. We talked about in previous episodes. He's Bishop from Aliens. He's also the main character in that TV show, which is kind of an X-Files spinoff Millennium. He's Bishop the Android in Aliens. Good one. Yeah. Tessa Thompson is in this. It is actually her first feature-length film. Who's Tessa Thompson? Tessa Thompson is Valkyrie and Thor. Valkyrie girl. Her name is Valkyrie. That's just her name. Even though she's one of many Valkyrie, they call her Valkyrie and she doesn't have a name in the series. Oh. She's just Valkyrie. Oh. Tessa Thompson is Valkyrie and Thor. 
She's the girlfriend in Creed. She was one of the main characters in Annihilation. She's barely even in the movie. I wouldn't say that. She's one of the four or she has so about women. Three conversations. No, I liked her in that movie. I thought she was really good. And no, I'm talking about when a stranger calls. Oh, in this She's movie, barely even in the film. She has like three conversations. Yes, you're right. The main character's dad is Clark Gregg, who is Agent Coulson, another Marvel alum. Agent Coulson. He's in. He's the one who's obsessed with Captain America. Yes. Uh huh. He has a little boy crush on Yes. <laughs> so, oh, several of these- die saving Cap? Yes! Why are we talking about this? So, there are a lot of Marvel people in it. On the other hand, Katie Cassidy is in this movie, and I know her probably best from Arrow, but she is also- which is a DC series. Oh, the series. blonde girl. Yes. But she is also one of the characters in the Nightmare on Elm Street remake. I think she's the one that has the nightmare in the school. <laughs> I thought... It's also her film debut as well. Hmm. What's the main girl from? Like the OC or something like that. Oh, the main girl from this? Yes. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I was thinking of Nightmare. No, the main chick from the new Nightmare movie is... Uh, I like her, I think. Dragon Girl with the dragon tattoo. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Camilla Bell has been in, like, practically nothing she was supposed to be one of those sorts of like up-and-coming stars but she just never made it she was in practical magic when she was really young when she was like 11 or so she was in push remember fucking push no it's one of those movies where like you know street people have superpowers like jump or Chronicle or like just average people that that big that big series of movies that happened in like the 2000s or so where it's just like street level people with superpowers. She was in 10,000 BC like she's in nothing and I can see why she is terrible in this. She is a really bad actress in this like remarkably again insofar as it's worth remarking. (sighs) Several times in this movie, I'm like, oh, <laughs> oh, she's just not good. <laughs> and I'm sorry, I I recognize she's a real human being, but no good. Do not like her at all. <laughs> I mean, we're practically done talking about this movie as it is, and we'll we haven't tell- even gotten to the trailer just, yet. How about we just, when we get to it, we'll just list the things that happen. Because yeah. I'm pretty sure that's all you need. Okay. So you can take our advice. Please, for the love of God, take our advice. (laughs) And when we get back, we will talk about 2006's When a Stranger Calls. Hello? Is anyone there? I could have at least driven myself, Dad. I don't want you driving home alone this far so late at night. You must be Jill. You were so thrilled to find a babysitter at the last minute. Just make yourself at home. Hello? Have you checked the children? This feature cannot be used with the number. Hello? Who is this? Jill, is that you? Have you been calling me? Can I speak with the police? Has he threatened you? He just keeps on calling. You're safe inside that house. Why are you doing this? What do you want? 
Trace the call. It's coming from inside the house. You hear me? It's coming from inside the house. Kelsey, can you please get us started on When a Stranger Calls from 2006? Because honestly, the faster it's over, the better. The very beginning is just showing us that he is a serial killer. This is his MO. We hear a girl answer a phone. We don't even see any of this. We're like watching a carnival scene. And this is, I guess, happening in the apartments next door. Yeah. But we just hear like, She's being harassed, and the children are missing, and then he wants to kill her. So, that's what he does. He likes to stalk babysitters. Yeah. Then, we get to see our main character. What's her name? Jill. Was it the same in the original? Yes. Jill Johnson. So, Jill Johnson starts by showing us that she's a runner, and I think we're supposed to think that's going to be important, but It not. has nothing to do... There was a moment where I was like, oh, man, she's going to have to outrun him. And there were no sprints in this movie. There was one part in the whole movie, I think, where she was trying to run away from him. And it wasn't like track running at all. It had nothing to do with speed. It it wasn't long enough for it to come down to her being a, a track star or whatever. Yeah. It was pointless. Yes. We also see here that she has a problem with her boyfriend, Bobby. And there's that Bobby again. Yes. And he cheated on her with her friend, which is only important because it gives us more characters to yeah. meet throughout the film. Oh, also... Tessa Thompson is her friend. Yeah, Tessa Thompson is her other friend. Not the one who cheated yes. on her. No, Katie Cassidy was the one he cheated on her with. But also, her dad, to punish her, took away her cell phone and because made her work this job. Because she went over her minutes. Yes, because she was arguing with her boyfriend and she went like 800 minutes over plan. And they're like, hey, you know, it was a really sweet father-daughter kind of moment where he was punishing her. And it was still like, no, I, I legitimately believe this is for my own good, dad. Thanks. He was like, no, it's it's. She's like, you know why those calls happen. You know what was going on. And he's like, well, I know it was hard. But that's what matters, is to do the right thing when it's hard. I could have at least driven myself, Dad. Jill, you went over by 800 minutes. Do you know how much that cost us? At least you could wait until after 8 o'clock. I know. I always do. Except this time you didn't. That's, that's not fair, Dad. You know why. Sweetheart, I know, but still. But see, if I drove myself, you think I would have just bailed and not shown up? One month, Jill. No phone, no car. Besides, I don't want you driving home alone this far so late at night. Just think of this as learning responsibility. Dad, I am responsible. I mean when it's not easy. When it's complicated. When it hurts. That's when it counts. And, you know, she just kind of smiles, gives him a kiss on the cheek or something like that, and then goes inside. Yes. And everyone else is going to a bonfire party, which you also think was going to be important, but it's not. It, just so they kind of don't have reception, I think is the only reason. That's where Tessa Thompson goes, so she's out of the movie almost immediately, except for one time she gets called. Yes. And the house is also very far away, which will play into the end of the film, even though we'll discuss why it really shouldn't matter. Cops say it's going to take 20 minutes for them to get out oh, there. Oh, yeah, uh-huh, yeah. And this house is very, very fancy, and it is just designed for jump scares. So, 
Let's talk about the different things that are being set up as jump scares later on. There is the cat. The cat. Cute kitty cat. There is the garden, which has sprinklers and birds and fish. And it has motion censored lights. Well, also, you say fish. Like, the world's deepest koi pond runs through that garden. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. It's like 10 feet deep. (laughs) Also, we know that there is a maid who lives upstairs Mm -hmm. who will be in and out because she sometimes visits her mother on these weekend evenings. Yep, just another reason for... She can't be relied on to watch the children, so we need the babysitter. And also, anytime she hears a noise, it might be the the housekeeper. We are also told that there is a son from a previous marriage in college who might or might not be in the guest house. And he literally never shows up. (laughs) He's not in the entire film. But the guest house does come into play. Yes, it does. And then, of course, there are the children who, again, are suffering from the flu, and she has been asked to not disturb them again. They actually play a part in this movie a little bit, as opposed to dying in the end. (laughs) They survive this one. Yes. So, first 20 minutes. We already said it started with a 20-minute short in the original He extended it because he thought he could make a full-length feature out of it, and it extends really weird. There's tonal shifts. The the flow slows down really bad in the middle of the movie. Now, imagine take just that 20 minutes, and instead of adding something onto the end, stretching that 20 minutes out to the entire length of the film. And imagine how boring that would be. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we watched that. There are a few differences, like we said, but what what else happens, Kels? Her friend who kissed her boyfriend. Yeah, which apparently was all it was. Shows up. And that's a jump scare as well. Uh Uh-huh. But that does lead to the first death. Yeah, somebody actually dies other than the kids (laughs) in this movie. But her friend coming in, I think, is what sets off the alarm inside the house. Oh, yeah. There's all this business with the alarm. Yes. There's a lot of business with the alarm. She also gets a prank phone call from one of Bobby's friends. Yep. That's a real prank phone call this time. Yes. They do the ice dropping as well. Just another jump scare as well. Yeah, but this one, they played it like a big jump scare or something. I, I've banished it from my mind. <laughs> but she also, she does take um, an ice cream bar this time uh-huh. instead of a popsicle. Or was it the other way around? No. In the original, it's a popsicle. In this one, it's an ice cream bar. Okay. I literally wrote down in my notes, is anything going to happen? Yes, exactly. Because the whole night is filled with jump scares, and she thinks she's getting legitimate prank phone calls, because she got legitimately a prank phone call. And even still, even if she figured out that this was separate from that, there is no imminent threat for a very long time in this movie that she is aware of. And if our main character is not afraid, it's really hard to build tension unless we know what she doesn't know. But we also don't know what she doesn't know. Like, really, nothing's happening yet. And it's a lot of walking around and her being distressed about her boyfriend's friends Yes. Calling her, and it and it's a long time into this movie before she even knows to be afraid. Yes. 
And her friend, so remember her friend tries to leave, but there is a tree in front of the gate. Yep. That is another trope. And then she gets a phone call from her friend, but it's not her friend. Right. And that's the problem, because that will never come up again. No, the fact that even when she tries to call the police and she's like, hey, this prank phone caller is calling me and she's trying to prove that, yes, this really is a threat. She never says, he, hey, he also called me from my friend's cell phone and now I can't get a hold of her like or anything like that. It's like we just forgot the fact that... That's what I wrote. I wrote, it's like the creators of this film cared so little that they forgot what had happened. Yes. <laughs> we get a jump scare with clothes. Remember that? Where she sees the shadow and it ends up just being close. No. There's that also a happens. statue at the top of the stairs that's really creepy. And that casts a shadow. When... <laughs> I don't know why I didn't think of this in the first movie, but I wrote it for the second one. She, when she gets the, have you checked the children? No, I haven't. Hello? Have you checked the children? No, I haven't. <laughs> she says that? No, but I wish she did. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> have you ever been to buy you? Oh, no, I haven't. Oh, I see. Donald Duck. Got it. Donald. Have you ever been to Bahia? No. No, I haven't. <laughs> Have you checked the children? No, I haven't. <laughs> but she does in this version. Yes. How about that? She actually checked the children. <laughs> yes. But what What does she find? They're in the bedroom. They're fine. And they're fine. They're just sleeping. Yeah. And, but then she gets another call. And this time the person says, Hello? Because he knows she checked, as opposed to in the first one, where he knew she didn't check. Exactly. So she is now aware that he is, in fact, watching her. And I think this is also the only real confirmation that the audience gets that he can see her. Because throughout this movie, the movie plays it like she doesn't know he's in the house, and we don't either. So, like I said before, it's hard to create a tense atmosphere when the main character doesn't even know she's in danger, unless we know she's in danger. But the movie is structured in such a way where they pretend you've never seen the original and you don't know the calls are coming from inside the house. And so now we're supposed to understand it. Now, here's the problem, though. That means that this movie is built like he's calling from inside the house as a twist. What a twist! In the original, it happens in the first 20 minutes. <laughs> so we don't have to believe that we got through this whole entire movie without knowing that the guy's inside the house. This is the whole entire movie before we actually <laughs> find out about that fact that he can even see her. So movie plays it like a twist, but they put it in the trailer. <laughs> it's in all the marketing that the call is coming from inside the house. And <laughs> the summary on the DVD case even says it. So like it so now it's not even a twist but you're building it like a twist. So now I'm just waiting for you to tell me that that's the case. I already know that's the case and you're like, "Oh, is something happening here?" is the is the like undercurrent of most of this movie and it's like, "Yeah, we know he's inside the house." It's just so boring. Yes it is. Yes, it is. When she calls 911, we find out that they live on Old Mill Road, and all I could think was the Old Town Road song. Or 
Okay, here's the thing. Did anybody else originally hear in the lyrics to Old Town Road? Gonna take my... Before I knew what it was called, I always thought he was saying, gonna take my horse to the hotel room. Gonna ride till I can't no more. And I'm like, that man's gonna fuck his horse. And then I found out that the name of the song was Old no Town Road. No one thought that. <laughs> I thought that. No one thought Nobody that. Nobody else is with me on that? No. I've told friends that, and they've like, damn you, that's all I can hear now. <laughs> that's when she sees the shadows in the guest house. Yeah, so she runs out to the guest house. Mm-hmm. Tries to do it quickly. Yes, and she gets to a confrontation, I think. Or is she still on the phone at this point? I have that she writes, she says, why are you doing this to me? And that's when he says, I, because I want your blood all over me. Yeah, she's in, she's in the guest house and- The he, shower is on. And he calls her in the guest house and she keeps the phone call going for a minute. Like she's constantly looking at her watch through all these calls to see if she can get him to stay on the line for a minute. And he finally does. And then she realizes, oh- he called the wrong phone line. <laughs> Son of a bitch. And then the house goes dark. Yeah. And she's worried about the kids. Yeah. So she goes running back for the kids. Yeah, because she's told you should you need to get out of there now, but she can't leave the children. Uh-huh. No, has she? She hasn't been told that yet. I have wrote that down. Oh, that happened. That does happen later where she's told that. She's back in the house, I think, when she's actually told that. This is what I wrote, that she has made her choice. This is the point of no return. Phantom. This is the point of no return. Oh, Jesus. Kelsey's a big Phantom fan. (laughs) She's also a big Cats fan, much to my chagrin lately. (laughs) The movie looks awful. Awful, I tell you. Anyway, she goes in there this time, and this is when she finds... Pillows under the blankets. Now, the first thing is that it's two options. Either the kids are aware they're in danger, and so they're hiding and trying to seem like they're still in the bed. Or or maybe they just broke out of the house to go, I don't know, rob a bank or something. Or the killer did that to fuck with her. Like, really? Are we supposed to believe that the killer took the kids and then put up pillows in the bed? I don't believe that. Well, that's because it was the children and they are yeah. hiding. And then when she finds them, she has to introduce herself. I'm Jill, the babysitter, because they don't know who she is. <laughs> yes, uh-huh. I'm Jill, the babysitter. <laughs> and then they hide in the garden area and lock him out. And then they manage to get out through a small window in the garden area. And <laughs> they get out into the incredibly deep koi pond. Oh, yeah, there's one part where she's hiding in the koi pond, and he ends up actually jumping in after her. Yes. And she finds a dead... She finds Rosa. Oh, yeah, Rosa's dead in the koi pond. Lady in the water. Yeah, sunk into the bottom of the ocean that is that koi pond. (laughs) But long story short, she's fighting him off, and he's strangling her, and then... She catches him on fire. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Remember, I was like, why is she throwing that bottle at him? I don't get it. Yeah. 
there's like this last ditch fight thing. And then she's running to the door and she gets to the door and she opens it up and, <gasps> and it's the police. And so they have one confrontation and she just gets out of his grasp and runs to the door and the police are there. And it's like, really, that's it. This is my big climactic moment. Everything about this movie builds up to this one interaction and it's like a nothing interaction. She gets she gets away because of practically nothing. She sets him on fire. And then there's a slow-mo <laughs> shot and then oh, movie's almost over now. It's a callback to the original. Yes, but again, the original was just setting up the first 20 minutes. It wasn't the entire fucking movie. Absolutely. But we do get a last scene. Don't yes. forget about this last scene. I wrote, well, that's a pretty fucked up ending, I guess. Oh, she does finally see his face. We have not seen his face this entire film. Yeah, and it's Tommy Flanagan. And that's it. Okay. Yep. But then we get a final scene, and... She's in the hospital for whatever reason... Because I guess she was damaged so bad she has to be in the hospital overnight. And she doesn't hear anything. She calls for the nurse and nothing happens. And she she has all the balloons are decorated with like get well soon balloons. But it doesn't say get well soon. No, it doesn't. Kelsey, what does it say? Get well wishes. Get well wishes. Kelsey and I both noticed this. Uh We're sitting there, and she was, like, feverishly typing into her phone. (laughs) And I turned to her, and I'm like, get well wishes? Is that what that says? And she looks at me, and she's like, right? (laughs) That's what she was typing into her phone. It's the weirdest fucking thing. (laughs) So she goes out, and I guess we're supposed to believe that this isn't a dream. The balloon... Pop! Yes. And she wakes up screaming! Yeah. And that's the end. She wakes up screaming because she's terrified that he's going to come back and get her. Yes. She has PTSD now, and it is, like, legitimately, and it is causing night terrors, and she might be suffering from this for a very long time, and that's a pretty fucked up ending. It's a ripoff of Carrie. But just because there's a jump scare at the end? Yes, and it's a hallucination, and it's supposed to be PTSD, and that she will never get over it. Oh, got it. Oh, I see what you... Yes. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I always forget that there's something that happens after the hand comes out of the grave. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough, I guess. (laughs) That's the ending of the movie. Do you have any lightning round stuff? I just want to say that, like, the entire first half of this movie is complete filler. Yeah. It is purely jump scares mm-hmm. and a bullshit backstory that doesn't affect the story in any way. Yeah. You're learning about her friends and her boyfriend situation. And a lot, a lot is going on. And it has nothing to do with anything. Yeah. And it goes nowhere. Uh-huh. You don't even find out what happens with her and her boyfriend, so I don't know nope. why they bothered to tell us of it at all. Because they needed content. Exactly. The first, this half- one, the first one needed that middle chunk Right? Of him coming back into the live, getting the, the investigator. But it all does lead into something eventually. Yeah. Even though the one character does leave the movie, she's fulfilled her purpose. But yes. like this, it's to no end. Yeah. The whole first half is just bullshit jump scares and bullshit backstory that doesn't matter. Bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. And then you have the second half, which is then you have to build up her being afraid of him. Because you haven't introduced the killer yeah. to her until now. So it's like I'm watching 
a short movie. Mm-hmm. And it just... And, oh, God, I know I said it before the jump, but she is just... She's not good. She's not... Okay, she's not good, but she's not that bad either. She's fine. Well, okay, she's not, like, lifeblood bad. <laughs> or any of the... What's the carnival one? Not Carnival of Souls, the closed for the season or whatever. She's not, like, that bad. Right. She could be a professional actress, but she is just so wooden and quiet, but not, like, meek in an interesting way. Just, like, she she cannot emote, it appears, because everything's just so dour and depressing in this. <laughs> I will say that there was a chat bot component that they did to the marketing in this on AIM. That's awesome. Where you could talk to a bot and then it would eventually... I Yeah, I saw that with the trailer. That's so awesome. Yeah, it would talk about how there's a stranger keeps calling her and asking her to check on the children. It would eventually give you a number. You'd call that number and then you'd get an ad for the movie. The DVD apparently release the DVD release apparently directs you to a website. There was also a MySpace profile of Jill's character. Awesome. There's a funny little scene where she <laughs> has all these controllers in front of her. Yeah. And she can't figure out how to turn on the TV. She and... accidentally turns on the fireplace <laughs> and that does come back. <laughs> That's how she sets him on fire. Yes. So that was a funny little scene that I could relate to because every time you go to somebody's house, it's like, what does this one do? What uh -huh. does this one do? They have a really scary sculpture in the house. Yeah, this is the one at the top of the stairs I was talking about. To no end. Yes. It's just this really creepy sculpture. Of like that this she weird man, by. like like standing like the crooked man or whatever and it casts a shadow on the wall and it looks like a person but that never comes into play it's not even a she jump never scare, I don't thinks think. i don't think so she just kind of turns and is like what the hell and it like never comes into play she never thinks it's actually the guy or he thinks it's her or anything so dumb so what do you think it got on rotten tomatoes i know why don't you share with the class? Nine. Nine percent. When a stranger calls, ranks among the more misguided remakes in horror history, offering little more than a rote, largely fright-free update to the original. A Metacritic of 27. I agree. I think the movie seems like it was made by people who know what stylized elements of horror movies and in particular, home invasion movies are supposed to have, but not like why they have them and why that equals scary so they can't land it. And there's no content to back it up on top of that. So it's just a lot of scares that fall flat and no content to keep us intrigued. It was so uninteresting and boring and not at all scary. But here's the thing. Cinema score of B minus. What? Yes. Meaning people coming out of the theater who were interviewed and just asked, no commentary, give it an A to F ranking. B minus. I mean, if you think about the demographic, they don't really have to do much to impress them. Yeah, well, that was the time when just having a movie stylized like this, was it just fed the desire. Mm-hmm. It fed the old guys. It's a 13-year-old movie. Do you know what I mean? It's a movie for 13-year-olds. That's what I mean. Oh. <laughs> it is a 13-year-old movie. It's literally a 13-year-old movie. 
I was like, what does that have to do with it? Yeah, it's a movie for 13-year-olds. It's a movie for my kids. Yeah, uh-huh. Who I just wanted to get jump scares, and that's all they wanted. Yeah. It's a real, real big bummer. Which is really sad, because I enjoy actually scary movies. Like, I don't need to watch a movie that has this higher element of intellect to it to enjoy it. I enjoy scary movies, too, but I want it to actually be scary. Yeah. <laughs> so, do you think, not including the cinema score, do you think it's overrated or underrated? Just slightly underrated. Slightly. I don't know if it's a 9%, but I could see how 91% of people said they didn't like it. Yes. I'm going to give it a 15%. I, I was wondering if I should be really, really harsh and give it a 10. <laughs> I don't think it's that bad because we've had a lot worse on this show. Yes. I I will agree with you. I'll give it a 15. Just poof. Why did you do this to us, Alex? Nah, just kidding. The first one was great. <laughs> All right. That is 2006's When a Stranger Calls, thus ending our When a Stranger Calls double feature. The late night double feature feature show. What are we watching next week, Kelsey? Next week is another week of recommendations. Yes. Who from? This comes to us from Peter. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Peter. Peter wants oh, us, right. Peter wants us to watch some dark comedies about some crazy people. <laughs> it's also V Week because we're watching Vampire's Kiss and The Voices. I'm a vampire. I'm a vampire. A B C D E F G H I J K L M N O P I Love Vampire's Kiss. You definitely know Vampire's Kiss, even if you've never seen the movie. But or it even has, it has its own meme. Or even heard of it. It has several memes. <laughs> and it is so good. You might have never heard of this movie, but you've definitely seen of it before. Seen of it. Yes. <laughs> uh, I really like Vampire's Kiss. So I'm glad we're watching it. Kelsey, on the other hand, fucking hates it. <laughs> yeah, I hate this movie. So she's not looking forward to watching it. No. Who was it again? This comes to us from Peter. So thank you, Peter. What's the uh, the other one is Voices. That's Ryan Reynolds and his animals are talking to him. Yes. Yes. That convinces him to kill his girlfriends. Yes. So I never saw that one and I was actually really interested in seeing it. I never saw it either. So this could be a 50% or a 100 week for me. It could be a 50% or a zero week for you. <laughs> yeah, we'll find out. <laughs> You'll find out next week. Until then, you can always find us at podcemetery.com, on Twitter at podcemetery, or our email podcemetery at gmail.com. Don't forget to rate and review us in your podcatcher of choice. Five-star written reviews are totally great, and you should do that. Also, don't forget to share us with your friends. And best of all, thank you so much for listening in the first place. We love each and every one of you. Until next week, I've been Chris. I've been Kelsey. Before we go, Kelsey, any last words? Please, do me a favor. Just tell me truthfully, when was the last time you checked my children? I don't want to be
You know they can't see the looks you give me, right? (laughs) I'll take that as a cue to move on. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, That'll be taken out. It's my favorite UL. (sighs) I can't believe they tried to make that a thing. (laughs) I can't believe that it's impossible to find that fucking line anywhere. I want to use it all the time. Should really have gotten that for the resources. Yeah. I can try again. Do you know where? Oh, I can find it in the script. It's at the end. It's when she's talking to her before she wants to kill her. But for whatever reason, YouTube does not give you that entire scene. Oh, just my favorite UL. Ring, ring, ring. Hello? Have you checked the children? When a stranger calls, do you answer the phone? <laughs> Kelsey cancels a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I hated That's babysitting. Up. I hated it so much. What if, What would you do if I just never ended quiet time? I'd start watching the time, and as soon as a minute it passed, I'd be like, uh, are you watching it? <laughs> are we talking about it? <laughs> All right. She's oh, the girlfriend. Zendaya! In- Zendaya's a real person? Oh. Are they not the same person? No. Oh. I'm going to say that again in case I can't edit out you saying Zendaya. I thought that's what her name was. No, Zendaya is, uh... She's Mary Jane. Gamora? Gamora is... Maybe that's who you're thinking of. No, I know Valkyrie and Gamora are different. Right, but but Gamora is played by... Zendaya? No. Fucking no. Who's Zendaya? (laughs) Zendaya is Michi. Zendaya is Michi. Who's Michi? Zendaya is uh, is Mary Jane in the new Spider-Man movies. Oh, the girl who makes fun of him for being into the other chick. Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, but I always forget that Vin Diesel is in Guardians of the Galaxy. He's grouped. I am but grouped. Gamora, this is why I think you put these together. Gamora is played by Zoe Saldana. Maybe that's what you're thinking of. Anyway. Tessa Thompson. Mm. Do you remember how she dies? I'm going back over it in my mind. She She's freaking out. and She's trying to get in her car. She get hit over the head or something? We'll have to find out if I wrote it down later when it happens. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what's it's, a twist? Yeah. What a twist. She has kind of like a dream hallucination that he's coming after her. Oh, I thought you were going to play it like it was real and then tell him. Okay, well, what what is the hallucination? I don't remember. She's in her hospital bed 
with such balloons of... Oh, yes. Okay. <laughs> I don't remember how the friend dies or how she finds her. She's ambushed off screen. Right. But like, when do we find her? I don't know if we do. <laughs> I'm sure we do. She finds her like in the fridge or something. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Well, I wanted to know. I understand, but we can't know. So it's not worth looking any further. Remember when somebody said we don't respect older movies? Mm-hmm. It's like, what do you... You didn't listen to the show. Nope. <laughs> you listened to one episode where we didn't like an older movie, and so you thought we just didn't respect older movies and just wanted the new shit. Sounds like it. Yeah. I feel like we've proven them wrong, and I don't know why I still think about it to this day. <laughs> That's an old, old comment. <laughs> and I still think about it. Thank you for listening so much in the first place. <laughs> 